If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 3 of The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice LeBlanc. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 3 The Escape of Arsène Lupin Arsène Lupin had just finished his repast and taken from his pocket an excellent cigar with a gold band, which he examined with unusual care when the door of his cell was opened. He had barely time to throw the cigar into the drawer and to move away from the table. The guard entered. It was the hour for exercise. I was waiting for you, my dear boy, exclaimed Lupin in his accustomed good humour. They went out together. As soon as they had disappeared at a turn in the corridor, two men entered the cell and commenced a minute examination of it. One was Inspector Tusey, the other was Inspector Follenfant. They wished to verify their suspicion that Arsène Lupin was in communication with his accomplices outside of the prison. On the preceding evening, the Grand Journal had published these lines addressed to its court reporter. Monsieur, in a recent article, you referred to me in most unjustifiable terms. Some days before the opening of my trial, I will call you to account. Arsène Lupin The handwriting was certainly that of Arsène Lupin. Consequently, he sent letters and, no doubt, received letters. It was certain that he was preparing for that escape thus arrogantly announced by him. The situation had become intolerable. Acting in conjunction with the examining judge, the chief of the Surete, Mondoudoui, had visited the prison and instructed the Galois in regard to the precautions necessary to ensure Lupin's safety. At the same time, 
he sent the two men to examine the prisoners' cells. They raised every stone, ransacked the bed, did everything customary in such a case, but they discovered nothing and were about to abandon their investigation when the guard entered hastily and said, The drawer, look in the table drawer. When I entered just now, he was closing it. They opened the drawer, and Juicy exclaimed, Ah, we have him this time. Follenfant stopped him. Wait a moment, the chief will want to make an inventory. This is a very choice cigar. Leave it there, notify the chief. Two minutes later, Mon Dudui examined the contents of the drawer. First he discovered a bundle of newspaper clippings relating to Arsène Lupin taken from the Argus de la Presse, then a tobacco box, a pipe, some paper called Onion Peel, and two books. He read the titles of the books. One was an English edition of Carlyle's Hero Worship. The other was a charming Elsevier in modern binding, the Manual of Epictetus, a German translation published at Leiden in 1634. On examining the books, he found that all the pages were underlined and annotated. Were they prepared as a code for correspondence, or did they simply express the studious character of the reader? Then he examined the tobacco box and the pipe. Finally, he took up the famous cigar with its gold band. Victor, he exclaimed, our friend smokes a good cigar. It's a Henry Clay. With the mechanical action of a habitual smoker, he placed the cigar close to his ear and squeezed it to make it crack. Immediately, he uttered a cry of surprise. The cigar had yielded under the pressure of his fingers. He examined it more closely, and quickly discovered something white between the leaves of the tobacco. Delicately, with the aid of a pin, he withdrew a roll of very thin paper, scarcely larger than a toothpick. It was a letter. He unrolled it, and found these words written in a feminine handwriting. The basket has taken the place of the others. Eight out of ten are ready. On pressing the outer foot, the plate goes downward. From twelve to sixteen every day, HP will wait. But where? Reply at once. Rest easy. Your friend is watching over you. 
Mon Dudui reflected a moment, then said, It is quite clear, the basket, the eight compartments, from twelve to sixteen, means from twelve to four o'clock. But this HP, that will await. HP must mean automobile. HP, horsepower, is the way they indicate strength of the motor. A 24 HP is an automobile of 24 horsepower. Then he rose and asked, Has the prisoner finished his breakfast? Yes, and as he has not yet read the message, which is proved by the condition of the cigar, it is probable that he had just received it. How? In his food, concealed in his bread or in a potato, perhaps. Impossible. His food was allowed to be brought in simply to trap him, but we have never found anything in it. We will look for Lupin's reply this evening. Detain him outside for a few minutes. I shall take this to the examining judge, and, if he agrees with me, we will have the letter photographed at once, and in an hour you can replace the letter in the drawer in a cigar similar to this. The prisoner must have no cause for suspicion. It was not without a certain curiosity that Mon Dudui returned to the prison in the evening, accompanied by Inspector Doozy. Three empty plates were sitting on the stove in the corner, Has he eaten? Yes, replied the guard. Doozy, please cut that macaroni into very small pieces and open that bread roll. Nothing? No, chief. Mon Dudui examined the plates, the forks, the spoon, the knife, an ordinary knife with a round blade. He turned the handle to the left, then to the right. It yielded and unscrewed. The knife was hollow and served as a hiding place for a sheet of paper. Pew, he said, that is not very clever for a man like Arsène. But we mustn't lose any time. You, Doozy, go and search the restaurant Then he read the note. I trust you. HP will follow at a distance every day. I will go ahead. Au revoir, my friend. At last, cried Mon Dudui, rubbing his hands gleefully. I think we have the affair in our own hands. A little strategy on our part and the escape will be a success in so far as the arrest of his confederates are concerned. But if Arsène Lupin slips through your fingers, suggested the guard, 
we will have a sufficient number of men to prevent that. If, however, he displays too much cleverness, ma foi, so much the worse for him. As to his band of robbers, since the chief refuses to speak, the others must. And, as a matter of fact, Arsène Lupin had very little to say. For several months, Monjules Bouvier, the examining judge, had exerted himself in vain. The investigation had been reduced to a few uninteresting arguments between the judge and the advocate. Maitre Danval, one of the leaders of the bar, from time to time, through courtesy, Arsène Lupin would speak. One day, he said, Yes, Monsieur Le Judge, I quite agree with you. The robbery of the Credit Lyonnaise, the theft in the Rue de Babylone, the issue of the counterfeit banknotes, the burglaries at the various Chateau Armasnil, Goray, Imbovain, Grosliere, Malachise, all my work, Monsieur, I did it all. Then you will explain to me. It is useless. I confess everything in a lump. Everything and even ten times more than you know about. The judge had suspended his examinations, but he resumed them after the two intercepted messages were brought to his attention, and regularly, at midday, Arsène Lupin was taken from the prison to the depot in the prison van with a certain number of prisoners. They returned about three or four o'clock. Now, one afternoon, this return trip was made under unusual conditions. The other prisoners not having been examined, it was decided to take back Arsène Lupin first. Thus, he found himself alone in the vehicle. These prison vans vulgarly called paniers a salade, or salad baskets, are divided lengthwise by a central corridor from which open ten compartments, five on either side. Each compartment is so arranged that the occupant must assume and retain a sitting posture, and... Consequently, the five prisoners are seated one upon the other, and yet separated one from the other by partitions. A municipal guard, standing at one end, watches over the corridor. Arsène was placed in the third cell on the right, and the heavy vehicle started. He carefully calculated when they left the Quai de l'Horloge and when they passed the Palace de Justice. Then, 
about the centre of the bridge St. Michael, with his outer foot, that is to say, his right foot, he pressed upon the metal plate that closed his cell. Immediately, something clicked. The metal plate moved. He was able to ascertain that he was located between the two wheels. He waited, keeping a sharp lookout. The vehicle was proceeding slowly along the boulevard St. Michael. At the corner of St. Germain, it stopped. A truck horse had fallen. The traffic having been interrupted, a vast throng of faracries and omnibuses had gathered there. Arsène Lupin looked out. Another prison van had stopped close to the one he occupied. He moved the plate still farther, put his foot on one of the spokes of the wheel, and leaped to the ground. A coachman saw him, roared with laughter, then tried to raise an outcry, but his voice was lost in the noise of the traffic that had commenced to move again. Moreover, Arsène Lupin was already far away. He had run for a few steps, but, once upon the sidewalk, he turned and looked around. He seemed to scent the wind like a person who is uncertain which direction to take. Then, having decided, he put his hands in his pockets, and, with the careless air of an idle stroller, he proceeded up the boulevard. It was a warm, bright autumn day, and the cafes were full. He took a seat on the terrace of one of them. He ordered a bock and a package of cigarettes. He emptied his glass slowly, smoked one of the cigarettes, and lighted a second. Then he asked the waiter to send the proprietor to him. When the proprietor came, Arsène spoke to him in a voice loud enough to be heard by everyone. I regret to say, monsieur, I have forgotten my pocketbook. Perhaps, on the strength of my name, you will be pleased to give me credit for a few days. I am Arsène Lupin. The proprietor looked at him thinking he was joking, but Arsène repeated, Lupin, prisoner at the Santé, but now a fugitive. I venture to assume that the name inspires you with perfect confidence in me. And he walked away, amidst the shouts of laughter, whilst the proprietor stood amazed. Lupin strolled along the Rue Soufflot and turned into the Rue St. Jacques. He pursued his way slowly, smoking his cigarettes and looking into the shop windows. At the boulevard de Port Royal, he took his bearings 
discovered where he was, and then walked in the direction of the Rue de la Santé. The high, forbidding walls of the prison were now before him. He pulled his hat forward to shade his face, then, approaching the sentinel, he asked, Is this the prison de la Santé? Yes. I wish to regain my cell. The van left me on the way, and I would not abuse. Now, young man, move along quick, growled the sentinel. Pardon me, but I must pass through that gate, and if you prevent Arsène Lupin from entering the prison, it will cost you dear, my friend. Arsène Lupin, what are you talking about? I am sorry I haven't a card with me, said Arsène, fumbling in his pockets. The sentinel eyed him from head to foot in astonishment. Then, without a word, he rang a bell. The iron gate was partly opened, and Arsène stepped inside. Almost immediately, he encountered the keeper of the prison, gesticulating and feigning a violent anger. Arsène smiled and said, Come, monsieur, don't play that game with me. What? They take the precaution to carry me alone in the van, prepare a nice little obstruction, and imagine I'm going to take my heels and rejoin my friends. Well, and what about the twenty agents of the Surete who accompanied us on foot, in firecars and on bicycles? No, the arrangement did not please me. I should not have got away alive. Tell me, monsieur, did they count on that? He shrugged his shoulders and added, I beg of you, monsieur, not to worry about me. When I wish to escape, I shall not require any assistance. On the second day thereafter, the Echo de France, which had apparently become the official reporter of the exploits of Arsène Lupin, it was said that he was one of its principal shareholders, published a most complete account of this attempted escape. The exact wording of the messages exchanged between the prisoner and his mysterious friend, the means by which correspondence was constructed, the complicity of the police, the promenade of the Boulevard St. Michael, the incident at the Café Soufflot. Everything was disclosed. It was known that the search of the restaurant and its waiters by Inspector Ducey had been fruitless, and the public also learned an extraordinary thing which demonstrated the infinite variety of resources that Lupin possessed. The prison van in which he was being carried, was prepared for the occasion 
and substituted by his accomplices for one of the six vans which did service at the prison. The next escape of Arsène Lupin was not doubted by anyone. He announced it himself in categorical terms in a reply to Mon Bouvier on the day following his attempted escape. The judge having made a jest about the affair, Arsène was annoyed, and, firmly eyeing the judge, he said emphatically, Listen to me, monsieur. I give you my word of honour that this attempted flight was simply preliminary to my general plan of escape. I do not understand, said the judge. It is not necessary that you should understand. And when the judge, in the course of that examination which was reported at length in the columns of the Echo de France, when the judge sought to resume his investigation, Arsène Lupin exclaimed with an assumed air of lassitude, Mon Dieu, mon Dieu, what's the use? All these questions are of no importance. What? No importance? cried the judge. No, because I shall not be present at the trial. You will not be present? No, I have fully decided on that and nothing will change my mind. Such assurances, combined with the inexplicable indiscretions that Arsène committed every day, served to annoy and mystify the officers of the law. They were secrets known only to Arsène Lupin, secrets that he alone could divulge. But for what purpose did he reveal them, and now? Arsène Lupin was changed to another cell. The judge closed his preliminary investigation. No further proceedings were taken in his case for a period of two months, during which time Arsène was seen almost constantly lying on his bed with his face turned towards the wall. The changing of his cell seemed to discourage him. He refused to see his advocate. He exchanged only a few words with his keepers. During the fortnight preceding his trial, he resumed his vigorous life. He complained of want of air, Consequently, early every morning, he was allowed to exercise in the courtyard, guarded by two men. Public curiosity had not died out. Every day it expected to be regaled with news of his escape, and, it is true, he had gained a considerable amount of public sympathy by reason of his verve, his gaiety, his diversity, his intentive genius and mystery of his life. 
Arsène Lupin must escape. It was his inevitable fate. The public expected it and was surprised that the event had been delayed so long. Every morning, the prefect of police asked his secretary, Well, has he escaped yet? No, Monsieur le Prefect. Tomorrow, probably. And, on the day before the trial, a gentleman called at the office of the Grand Journal, asked to see the court reporter, threw his card in the reporter's face, and walked rapidly away. These words were written on the card. Arsène Lupin always keeps his promises. It was under these conditions that the trial commenced. An enormous crowd gathered at the court. Everybody wished to see the famous Arsène Lupin. They had a gleeful anticipation that the prisoner would play some audacious pranks upon the judge. Advocates and magistrates, reporters and men of the world, actresses and society women were crowded together on the benches provided for the public. It was a dark, sombre day, with a steady downpour of rain. Only a dim light pervaded the courtroom, and the spectators caught a very indistinct view of the prisoner when the guards brought him in. But his heavy, shambling walk, the manner in which he dropped into his seat, and his passive, stupid appearance were not at all prepossessing. Several times his advocate, one of Mondanval's assistants, spoke to him, but he simply shook his head and said nothing. The clerk read the indictment, then the judge spoke. Prisoner at the bar, stand up. Your name, age and occupation. Not receiving any reply, the judge repeated, Your name, I asked you your name. A thick, slow voice muttered, Badru Desir. A murmur of surprise pervaded the courtroom, but the judge proceeded, Badru Desir, ah, a new alias. Well, as you have already assumed a dozen different names, and this one is, no doubt, as imaginary as the others, we will adhere to the name of Arsène Lupin, by which you are more generally known. The judge referred to his notes and continued. For, despite the most diligent search... Your past history remains unknown. Your case is unique in the annals of crime. We know not whom you are, whence you came, your birth and breeding. All is a mystery to us. Three years ago, you appeared in our midst as Arsène Lupin, 
presenting to us a strange combination of intelligence and perversion, immorality and generosity. Our knowledge of your life prior to that date is vague and problematic. It may be that the man called Rustat, who, eight years ago, worked with Dixon, the prestigitator, was none other than Arsène Lupin. It is probable that the Russian student who, six years ago, attended the laboratory of Dr. Altier at the St. Louis Hospital, and who often astonished the doctor by the ingenuity of his hypotheses on subjects of bacteriology and the boldness of his experiments in diseases of the skin, was none other than Arsène Lupin. It is probable also that Arsène Lupin was the professor who introduced the Japanese art of jiu-jitsu to the Parisian public. We have some reason to believe that Arsène Lupin was the bicyclist who won the Grand Prix de la Exposition, received his 10,000 francs, and was never heard of again. Arsène Lupin may have been, also, the person who saved so many lives through the little dormer window at the charity bazaar, and, at the same time, picked their pockets. The judge paused for a moment, then continued. Such is that epoch which seems to have been utilized by you in a thorough preparation for the warfare you have since waged against society. Methodical apprenticeship in which you developed your strength, energy, and skill to the highest point possible. Do you acknowledge the accuracy of these facts? During this discourse, the prisoner had stood balancing himself first on one foot, then on the other, with his shoulders stooped and arms inert. Under the strongest light, one could observe his extreme thinness, his hollow cheeks, his projecting cheekbones, his earthen-coloured face dotted with small red spots and framed in a rough, straggling beard. Prison life had caused him to age and wither. He had lost the youthful face and elegant figure which we had seen portrayed so often in the newspapers. It appeared as if he had not heard the question propounded by the judge. Twice it was repeated to him. Then he raised his eyes, seemed to reflect, then... Making a desperate effort, he murmured, Badru Desir. The judge smiled as he said, I do not understand the theory of your defense, Arsène Lupin. If you are seeking to avoid responsibility for your crimes on the grounds of imbecility, such a line of defense is open to you. 
but I shall proceed with the trial and pay no heed to your vagrancies. He then narrated at length the various thefts, swindles, and forgeries charged against Lupin. Sometimes he questioned the prisoner, but the latter simply grunted or remained silent. The examination of the witness commenced. Some of the evidence given was immaterial. Other portions of it seemed more important, but through all of it there ran a vein of contradictions and inconsistencies. A wearisome obscurity enveloped the proceedings until Detective Ganimard was called as a witness, then interest was revived. From the beginning, the actions of the veteran detective appeared strange and unaccountable. He was nervous and ill at ease. Several times he looked at the prisoner with obvious doubt and anxiety. Then, with his hands resting on the rail in front of him, he recounted the events in which he had participated, including his pursuit of the prisoner across Europe and his arrival in America. He was listened to with great avidity, as his capture of Arsène Lupin was well known to everyone through the medium of press. Towards the close of his testimony, after referring to his conversations with Arsène Lupin, he stopped, twice, embarrassed and undecided. It was apparent that he was possessed of some thought which he feared to utter. The judge said to him sympathetically, If you are ill, you may retire for the present. No, no, but... He stopped, looked sharply at the prisoner, and said, I ask permission to scrutinize the prisoner at closer range. There is some mystery about him that I must solve. He approached the accused man, examined him attentively for several minutes, then returned to the witness stand, and, in an almost solemn voice, he said, I declare, on oath, that the prisoner now before me is not Arsène Lupin. A profound silence followed the statement. The judge, nonplussed for a moment, exclaimed, Ah, what do you mean? That is absurd. The detective continued, At first sight there is a certain resemblance, but if you carefully consider the nose, the mouth, the hair, the color of the skin, you will see that it is not Arsène Lupin. And the eyes, did he ever have those alcoholic eyes? Come, come, witness, what do you mean? You pretend to say that we are trying the wrong man. In my opinion, yes. Arsène Lupin has, in some manner, contrived to put this poor devil in his place unless this man is a willing accomplice 
This dramatic denouement caused much laughter and excitement amongst the spectators. The judge adjourned the trial and sent for Mon Bouvier, the gallower, and the guards employed in the prison. When the trial was resumed, Mon Bouvier and the gallower examined the accused and declared that there was only a very slight resemblance between the prisoner and Arsène Lupin. Well then, exclaimed the judge, who is this man? Where does he come from? What is he in prison for? Two of the prison guards were called, and both of them declared that the prisoner was Arsène Lupin. The judge breathed once more, but one of the guards then said, Yes, yes, I think it is he. What? cried the judge impatiently. You think it is he? What do you mean by that? Well, I saw very little of the prisoner. He was placed in my charge in the evening, and, for two months, he seldom stirred, but laid on his bed with his face to the wall. What about the time prior to those two months? Before that, he occupied a cell in another part of the prison. He was not in cell 24. Here the head gallower interrupted and said, We changed him to another cell after his attempted escape. But you, monsieur, you have seen him during those two months. I had no occasion to see him. He was always quiet and orderly. And this prisoner is not Arsène Lupin. No. Then who is he? demanded the judge. I do not know. Then we have before us a man who was substituted for Arsène Lupin two months ago. How do you explain that? I cannot. In absolute despair, the judge turned to the accused and addressed him in a conciliatory tone. Prisoner, can you tell me how, and since when, you became an inmate of the prison de la Sante? The engaging manner of the judge was calculated to disarm the mistrust and awaken the understanding of the accused man. He tried to reply. Finally, under clever and gentle questioning, he succeeded in framing a few phrases from which the following story was gleaned. Two months ago, he had been taken to the depot, examined and released. As he was leaving the building, a free man, he was seized by two guards and placed in the prison van. Since then, he had occupied cell 24. He was contented there, plenty to eat, and he slept well, so he did not complain. All that seemed probable, and, amidst the mirth and excitement of the spectators, the judge adjourned the trial until the story could be investigated and verified. 
The following facts were at once established by an examination of the prison records. Eight weeks before a man named Bedru Desir had slept at the depot, he was released the next day and left the depot at two o'clock in the afternoon. On the same day at two o'clock, having been examined for the last time, Arsène Lupin left the depot in a prison van. Had the guards made a mistake? Had they been deceived by the resemblance and carelessly substituted this man for their prisoner? Another question suggested itself. Had the substitution been arranged in advance? In that event, Bedrew must have been an accomplice and must have caused his own arrest for the express purpose of taking Lupin's place. But then, by what miracle had such a plan, based on a series of improbable chances, been carried out? Boudreau Desir was turned over to the anthropological service. They had never seen anything like him. However, they easily traced his past history. He was known at Corbevu, at Asneres, and Levoui. He lived on arms and slept in one of those rag-pickers' huts near the barrier de Tenez. He had disappeared from there a year ago. Had he been enticed away by Arsène Lupin? There was no evidence to that effect, and even if that was so, it did not explain the flight of the prisoner. That still remained a mystery. Amongst twenty theories which sought to explain it, not one was satisfactory. Of the escape itself, there was no doubt an escape that was incomprehensible, sensational, in which the public, as well as the officers of the law, could detect a carefully prepared plan, a combination of circumstances marvellously dovetailed, whereof the denouement fully justified the confident prediction of Arsène Lupin. I shall not be present at my trial. After a month of patient investigation, the problem remained unsolved. The poor devil of Bedru could not be kept in prison indefinitely, and to place him on trial would be ridiculous. There was no charge against him. Consequently, he was released but the chief of the Sûreté resolved to keep him under surveillance. This idea originated with Ganimard. From his point of view, there was neither complicity nor chance. Boudreau was an instrument upon which Arsène Lupin had played with his extraordinary skill. Boudreau, when set at liberty, would lead them to Arsène Lupin or, at least, to some of his accomplices. The two inspectors, Follenfant and Duzi, were assigned to assist Ganimard. One foggy morning in January, the prison gates opened, 
and Bedrew Desir stepped forth, a free man. At first he appeared to be quite embarrassed, and walked like a person who had no precise idea whither he is going. He followed the Rue de la Sante and the Rue Saint-Jacques. He stopped in front of an old clothes shop, removed his jacket and his vest, sold his vest on which he realized a few sous, then, replacing his jacket, he proceeded on his way. He crossed the Seine. At the Chateau, an omnibus passed him. He wished to enter it, but there was no place. The controller advised him to secure a number, so he entered the waiting room. Ganimard called to his two assistants, and, without removing his eyes from the waiting room, he said to them, Stop a carriage. No, two. That will be better. I will go with one of you, and we will follow him. The men obeyed, yet Bedrew did not appear. Ganimard entered the waiting room. It was empty. Idiot that I am, he muttered. I forgot there was another exit. There was an interior corridor extending from the waiting room to the Rue St. Martin. Ganimard rushed through it and arrived just in time to observe Bedrew upon the top of the Batanoles Jardin de Platz Omnibus as it was turning the corner of the Rue de Rivoli. He ran and caught the omnibus, but he had lost his two assistants. He must continue pursuit alone. In his anger, he was inclined to seize the man by the collar without ceremony. Was it not with premeditation that his pretended imbecile had separated him from his assistants? He looked at Bedru. The latter was asleep on the bench, his head rolling from side to side, his mouth half open, and an incredible expression of stupidity on his blotched face. No, such an adversary was incapable of deceiving old Ganimard. It was a stroke of luck, nothing more. At the Galeries Lafayette, the man leaped from the omnibus and took the tramway, following the boulevard Hasselman and the avenue Victor Hugo. Bedrew alighted at La Mute Station, and, with a nonchalant air, strolled into the boys de Bouillon. He wandered through one path after another, and sometimes retracted his steps. What was he seeking? Had he any definite object? At the end of an hour, he appeared to be faint from fatigue, and, noticing a bench, he sat down. The spot, not far from Atuil, on the edge of a pond hidden amongst the trees, was absolutely deserted. After the lapse of another half hour, Ganimard became impatient and resolved to speak to the man. He approached and took a seat beside Bedrew, 
lighted a cigarette, traced some figures in the sand with the end of his cane, and said, It's a pleasant day. No response. But suddenly, the man burst into laughter, a happy, mirthful laughter, spontaneous and irresistible. Ganimard felt his hair stand on end in horror and surprise. It was that laugh, that infernal laugh, he knew so well. With a sudden movement, he seized the man by the collar and looked at him with a keen, penetrating gaze and found that he no longer saw the man Bedrew. To be sure, he saw Bedrew, but at the same time, he saw the other, the real man, Lupin. He discovered the intense life in the eyes. He filled up the shrunken features. He perceived the real flesh beneath the flabby skin, the real mouth through the grimaces that deformed it. Those were the eyes and mouth of the other, and especially his keen, alert, mocking expression, so clear and youthful. Arsène Lupin, Arsène Lupin, he stammered. Then, in a sudden fit of rage, he seized Lupin by the throat and tried to hold him down. In spite of his fifty years, he still possessed unusual strength, whilst his adversary was apparently in a weak condition. But the struggle was a brief one. Arsène Lupin made only a slight movement, and, as suddenly as he has made the attack, Ganimard released his hold. His right arm fell inert, useless. If you had taken lessons in jiu-jitsu at the Quai d'Orfraise, said Lupin, you would know that that blow is called Udishigi in Japanese. A second more, and I would have broken your arm, and that would have been just what you deserve. I am surprised that you, an old friend whom I respect, and before whom I voluntarily expose my incognito, should abuse my confidence in that violent manner. It is unworthy. Ah, what's the matter? Ganimard did not reply. That escape from which he deemed himself responsible, was it not he, Ganimard, who, by his sensational evidence, had led the court into serious error? That escape appeared to him like a dark cloud on his professional career. A tear rolled down his cheek to his grey moustache. Oh, mon dieu, Ganimard, don't take it to heart. If you had not spoken, I would have arranged for someone else to do it. I couldn't allow poor Bedrew Desir to be convicted. Then, murmured Ganimard, it was you that was there, and now you are here. It is I, always I, only I. Can it be possible? Oh, it is not the work of sorcery. Simply, as the judge remarked at the trial, 
the apprenticeship of a dozen years that equips a man to cope successfully with all the obstacles in life. But your face, your eyes, you can understand that if I worked 18 months with Dr. Altier at the St. Louis Hospital, it was not out of love for the work. I considered that he, who would one day have the honor of calling himself Arsène Lupin, ought to be exempt from the ordinary law of governing appearance and identity. Appearance, that can be modified at will. For instance, a hypodermic injection of paraffin will puff up the skin at the desired spot. Prologic acid will change your skin to that of an Indian. The juice of the greater caladine will adorn you with the most beautiful eruption and tumours. Another chemical affected the growth of your beard and hair. Another changes the tone of your voice. Add to that two months of dieting in cell 24. Exercises repeated a thousand times to enable me to hold my features in a certain grimace, to carry my head at a certain inclination, and adapt my back and shoulders to a stooping posture. Then five drops of atrophine in the eyes to make them haggard and wild, and the trick is done. I do not understand how you deceived the guards. The change was progressive. The evolution was so gradual that they failed to notice. But Boudreau Desire. Boudreau exists. He is a poor, harmless fellow whom I met last year. And, really, he bears a certain resemblance to me. Considering my arrest as a possible event, I took charge of Boudreau and studied the points wherein we differed in appearance with a view to correct them in my own person. And your prison van, said Ganimard. A bluff. Some of my friends secured the old unused van and wished to make the attempt, but I considered it impractical without the concurrence of a number of unusual circumstances. However, I found it useful to carry out that attempted escape and give it the widest publicity, an audaciously planned escape, though not completed, gave to the succeeding one the character of reality simply by anticipation. So that the cigar, hollowed by myself as well as the knife, and the letters written by me and the mysterious correspondent did not exist. After a short silence, Ganimard asked, What are you going to do now? Now, replied Lupin, I'm going to take a rest, enjoy the best of food and drink, and gradually recover my former healthy condition. It is all very well to become Boudreau or some other person on occasion, and to change your personality as you do your shirt. 
but you soon grow weary of the change. I feel exactly as I imagine the man who lost his shadow must have felt, and I shall be glad to be Arsène Lupin once more. He walked to and fro for a few minutes, then, stopping in front of Ganimard, he said, You have nothing more to say, I suppose. Yes, I should like to know if you intend to reveal the true state of facts connected with your escape, the mistake that I made. Oh, no one will ever know that it was Arsène Lupin who was discharged. It is to my own interest to surround myself with mystery, and therefore I shall permit my escape to retain its almost miraculous character. So, have no fear on that score, my dear friend. I shall say nothing. And now, goodbye. I'm going out to dinner this evening and have only sufficient time to dress. I thought you wanted a rest. Ah, there are duties to society that one cannot avoid. Tomorrow I shall rest. Where do you dine tonight? With the British ambassador. <laughs>